57 7. You have made your bed on a high and lofty hill. There you went up to offer your sacrifices. Behind your doors and your doorposts, you have put your pagan symbols. Forsaking me, you uncovered your bed and climbed into it and opened it wide. You made a pact with those whose beds you love and you looked on their nakedness. You went to Molech with olive oil and increased your perfumes. You sent your ambassadors far away. You descended to the grave itself. You were wearied by all your ways, but you would not say it is hopeless. You found renewal of your strength, and so you did not faint. Whom have you dreaded and feared that you have been so false to me, and have neither remembered me nor pondered this in your hearts? Is it not because I have long been silent that you do not fear me? I will expose your righteousness and your works. And they will not benefit you. When you cry out for help, let your collection of idols save you. The wind will carry all of them off. A mere breath will blow them away. But the man who makes me his refuge will inherit the land and possess my holy mountain. And it will be said, build up, build up, prepare the road, remove the obstacles out of the way of my people. Well, this is what the high and lofty one says. He who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. I will not accuse forever, nor will I always be angry. For then the spirit of man would grow faint before me, the breath of man that I have created. I was enraged by his sinful greed. I punished him and hid my face in anger, yet he kept on in his willful ways. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will guide him and restore comfort to him, creating praise on the lips of the mourners in Israel. Peace. Peace to those far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal them. But the wicked are like the tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. This is the word of the Lord. We were singing about the hills earlier on, um, I lift my eyes to the quiet hills, a song probably based on Psalm 121. And hills are important uh, to us. Uh, it's good sometimes to go up the hills. I think these are the hills near Glencoe. And when you go up these hills, hills give us um, a perspective, a height and a vision so that we can we can look down and evaluate the scenery around us. And in a sense, when we look at this text, which is Isaiah 57 and verse 15, this wonderful text gives us a perspective on God. A perspective through the word of the Lord to the prophets 
Isaiah. And remember, the prophets lived close, close to God. The prophets often said, as the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, literally, to the face of whom I stand. They spoke to men as people to whom God had spoken. And so, in this wonderful verse, chapter 57, verse 15, this is our text tonight, and it gives us a height, a vision, and a perspective on God. For this is what the High and Lofty One says, He who lives forever, whose name is Holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So even if you don't get a great sermon tonight, you've got a great text. A way home, and as Alexander White would say, roll it under your tongue like a sweetie. All week. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Thank you. Hills, human and divine. The passage that we're talking about <clears throat> contrasts the lofty hills of pagan worship. You know that in the Old Testament, they worshipped at places called the high places. The logic went something like this. If you want to get in touch with God, the best way to get in touch with God is to go up a hill. Because the logic goes, if God is up in the sky, the nearest place to God is at the top of the highest mountain. And you say, well, this is so unfair, I live in a flat land. Simple answer, well, make yourself a mountain, get some earth and compact it and build it up into a mound and build a sanctuary on top of it and you're a bit nearer to God. Or if you live in Mesopotamia, the flat lands there between the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, then build a temple tower, a ziggurat, with a, a, a shrine on the very top of the temple tower, and then you'll be near to God. And in this passage, he talks about the lofty hills and the pagan sacrifices. And Isaiah has a particular bee in his bonnet about idolatry. Because, you see, idolatry is an insult to God. To represent God by an idol is to misrepresent him. As soon as you have built an idol of wood or stone or metal, in that idol you have circumscribed and defined God. Get the idea? So, to represent God in an idol is to misrepresent him. Idolatry is pure stupidity uh, to the prophet Isaiah. He, in one of the passages in the book, he talks about a man going into the woods and cutting a piece of tree trunk. And then he divides it in two and he chops up one half and lights a fire and heats his dinner on it. The other half he carves into an idol and worships it. How stupid, Isaiah says. How stupid. And so, by way of contrast, he points the people to a far greater object for their worship. The God who is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, we look at mountains, human and divine. Thank you. And I see this text in three different ways. 
in our perspective of God. And that's what I'm simply going to talk about for the next <clears throat> 20 minutes, perhaps. Um, first of all, uh, we look at God at top level. God at top level. That's the first part of our text. For this is what the high and lofty one says, who lives forever, whose name is holy. He defines God in three different ways in the first part of our text. There's a threefold description of God given here. First of all, the majesty of God. In the sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah received his inaugural vision. He says, it was in the year that King Isaiah died. He saw the Lord high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. He had pinned great hopes on the King Isaiah, and here he was seeing God in a disappointment. I don't know where you are tonight in your mental and physical and spiritual states. Um, perhaps there's a disappointment in your life. Tonight God has brought you here, and hope, hopefully tonight, through the grace of God, you'll see God even through your disappointment. And in his vision, God was like a king, sitting on a throne. The hem of his garment filled the temple. He pictures God with his kingly robes on, cascading over the sides of the throne. And he's pointing out that this vision, um, as in chapter 6, did not exhaust the vision of God. It was only the train of his robe that filled the temple. As elsewhere, the psalmist makes it perfectly clear um, that the heavens, for example, are the work of God's fingers. <laughs> God has not exhausted himself in creation, says the psalmist. And when you read Genesis 1, that magnificent passage in, in stately, dignified manner, the stages of creation are set out. And one of them uh, is like a P.S. It says, um, oh, he also made the stars, you know. <laughs> P.S. He also made the stars. You go to a planetarium, they'll show you millions of stars. And the psalmist says, oh, P.S. Um, he also made the stars. You see, God has not exhausted himself in creation. And in this vision of God in chapter 6, which burned itself into his consciousness. And Isaiah saw the Lord as a king, personally, intrinsically, and also relationally, because he's not on an equal playing field with the gods of pagan religion, just as we say today that the Christian gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ is qualitatively distinctive from the religions of the world around us. The followers of Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha, do not claim that he rose from the dead. If you were a communist, you could go and visit Lenin's tomb. He's lying in state in a mausoleum. The followers of Islam do not claim that Muhammad rose from the dead. But the Christians say, Jesus is risen. That's the qualitative distinction of the Christian message. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. And relationally, God is not in the same playing field 
as these other gods. So the Hindu misunderstood when he said to the missionary, give me an image of your Jesus and I'll put him on the, the, the shelf with uh, Huniman, the monkey god, or Ganesh, uh, the elephant god of Hinduism. He's misunderstood the message of the Christian gospel. And so, <clears throat> we see first of all in this picture that Isaiah gives us of his perspective on God is that God is a majestic king. Secondly, we see his eternity. He who lives forever. Isn't that wonderful? The God we worship tonight, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, lives forever. This was one of the great arguments of the godly in the Old Testament times. Those who followed the Baal worship at Ugarit wrote their own psalms and the psalms would begin, um, Baal lives! <laughs> and the psalms of uh, the Old Testament claim, the Lord lives. The Lord lives. The leaders and heroes of history are dead and gone. We remember those of us who are old enough, Mr. Tushchev at the United Nations with his shoe off, banging on the lectern, telling us that they would bury the West under the rubble of their cities. And within a few years, Tushchev had vanished like a puff of smoke. We look back to Adolf Hitler in the bunkers of Berlin. It took a dentist to identify his remains uh, because of the pattern of his teeth. His body was so uh, blitzed by what happened in the bunkers of Berlin that it took a dentist to identify his body. And he was the man whose life would last for a thousand years. In contrast to that, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ lives forever. And the Lord Jesus says, He who has seen me has seen the Father. And the New Testament says, The Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Isn't that wonderful? The God we worship tonight in this church is a God who lives forever. We see His majesty. We see His eternity. We see thirdly His purity here. His purity. Whose name is holy. Name in the Bible generally means defining characteristic. His defining characteristic is holy. And of course Hebrew is such a primitive language that nearly all of the concepts in the Old Testament are derived from verbs, from simple concrete verbs. And the verb from the word holiness is kadash, which means to cut, to sever. And holiness is negatively separation. Separation from sin. That is negative purity. Separation from sin. And it says in the Bible that the God is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity. He is a God separate from sin. And that, once again, marks out in Christianity in terms of its morality from some of the, the teaching of pagan religion in the Old Testament times 
which was full of immorality and the gods of the Greeks were very fickle, capricious <clears throat> and uh, promiscuous in their relationships. But here, the God of the Bible negatively is a God who is separate from sin. Holiness is then separation from sin. Unfortunately, in the Christian church, um, we tend to major on the negatives, don't we, quite often. Um, and folks say to us, you don't do this and you don't do that and you don't do the other thing, you Christians. What do you do? <laughs> There's a positive side to holiness as well. The taboo side is the negative side in world religion. The mana side is the positive side. And here's the positive side. Holiness is negatively separation from sin and positively dedication to purity. Dedication to purity. And so the God who is holy has called his people to be holy. Be ye holy, God says. Why? For I am holy. He doesn't call us into a standard with which he is not involved and familiar. And we are to live as the holy people of God. Why is it in our country Christianity is in such decline? Well, you see, John Stott says that Christianity um, is a subversive counterculture. And if we were to live holy lives, people would notice the difference in us and would be somehow interested and perhaps even attracted to think of the viability of giving their lives to Christ were we to live a holy life. But as Christians, we are not measuring up to the standards of a holy God. And this God uh, reveals himself through Isaiah to us tonight as a God of majesty, a God of eternity, and a God of purity. That's God at top level. This is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy. Are you still alive? Are you all right? Can we move on? Second point. God at top level. Secondly, God on two levels. The next part of the text. He says, I live in a high and holy place. He underlines that. And notice what he says. But also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. So I've drawn a little house here um, to give you the idea of uh, upstairs, downstairs. <laughs> what is God like? What is Isaiah's perspective of God? God is up there. He's up there, the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. His name is holy. But also, this is wonderful. This is the Christian gospel. He lives up there, but also down here. I listened to a pretty crummy male voice group in my uh, CD the other day. It's big enough to make the world and small enough to live in my heart. That was the sort of gist of this particular song. <laughs> I was listening to. He's up there, but he's also down here with those who are contrite and lowly 
in spirit. And of course, this raised the whole problem in the Old Testament period of mediation. The problem of mediation, it was a terrible problem for the Old Testament folk. Um, You probably have heard of the man called Job in the Old Testament. He was, according to the story, the richest man in the Middle East. Loads of flocks and herds, bags of gear, huge family, everything going swimmingly for Job. And then, without going into detail, he finds himself sitting on a pile of ashes, scraping the boils off his body with a piece of broken pottery and bemoaning his fate. And as if that wasn't enough, along come a group of his friends who taunt him and probe to find out what sin he has committed for this happening to him. And the whole thing forms a matrix of discussion on the problem of suffering. And at the heart of the problem in Job chapter 9, he's talking about the difficulty of relating to God from down here to up there. And he says, how then can I dispute with him? Job 9.14 How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy, even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm and multiply my wounds for no reason. Further down in the chapter, verse 32, He is not a man like me that I might answer him, that we might confront each other in court. If only there was someone to arbitrate between us, to lay his hand upon us both, someone to remove God's rod from me, so that his terror would frighten me no more. Then I would speak up without fear of him, but as it now stands with me, I cannot. That's the sad picture of the Old Testament longing for mediation. One of the old hymns that used to be in the hymn books uh, was a hymn called uh, Eternal Light. There's a couple of verses from it that I'd like to quote to you which encapsulate this problem. Oh, how can I, whose native sphere is dark, whose mind is dim, before the ineffable appear, and on my naked spirit bear the uncreated beam? There is a way for man to rise to that sublime abode, an offering and a sacrifice, a Holy Spirit's energies, an advocate with God's. You see, God has answered the problem in the New Testament. There's a solution. Who is the person that will join my hand with the hand of a holy God? And the answer is the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Um, In Hebrews chapter 8, the writer underlines it uh, a bit more. In In verse 6, The ministry Jesus has received is as superior 
to the old ministry in the Old Testament as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. Chapter 9, verse 14. If the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For this reason, Christ is the mediator of the new covenant. Now the old Pope was a good man. He was a kind man. He was a brilliant linguist. Great scholar. But when he died they were talking about him. Standing at the window of heaven. And blessing us. And interceding for us. And really that is really a red herring. And in a sense detracts from the unique ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ as the one mediator. No pastor, no minister, no priest, no bishop, no cardinal, no pope can be our mediator. Only Christ can be the mediator between us and God. And so Isaiah sees God on two levels. He says, where is God? Well, God is up there, (laughs) he says. Up there, the high and lofty one who lives forever, whose name is holy. I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. So there's God on top level, and there's God on two levels. And then in the third part of the text, we see God at ground level. God at ground level. Um, With the contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly, to revive the heart of the contrite. This is the God Isaiah brings to us in our text tonight. Look at this poor boy. Look at him. What a poor boy. His mother couldn't even put a shirt on him to send him to school. He's outside. I'm glad he's outside the bars, not behind the bars. He's outside the bars. This was me, age nine, um, outside the school gates in a pathetic state um, of poverty and need. And were you to go out into Edinburgh tonight, could you pick out the most contemptible character you could find. What might he be? A drunk, a drug addict, a tramp, a homeless? How, how would you classify the most contemptible person in Edinburgh tonight? And then ask yourself the question, could God do anything for him? You know, a few weeks ago I had a telephone call from Rossi. And the son of one of the church leaders there in this particular church had become a drug addict and a drug pusher. He went to Spain and was drug pushing in Spain. He was arrested, tried, convicted and imprisoned 
for his activities. And in many senses, you would classify him as one of the lowest of the low. Um, he'd sold drugs to children, for example. Um, do you know that young man met Christ in the jail? <laughs> he became a Christian. And he's being visited every few days by two Christians who care for him. And he has a voracious appetite for Scripture, for Christian literature, for prayer, and is longing for Christian fellowship when he gets out. And he aims when he gets out to be a witness to Jesus Christ. You know, that's what God is like. At ground level, he comes to us. And the picture here is the picture of revival. To revive the spirit of the lowly, the contemptible. And the, the prophet also uses the word contrite. If lowly means contemptible, uh, contrite means crushed. It means crushed. Crushed. And there are actually three stages when God takes someone who is like that. Imagine a trolley in a hospital with a body lying on it, almost moribund. And you think that person's going to die and someone comes along and gives oxygen to that almost a corpse on the trolley and you discover life comes surging through that body and the person is revived and active again. Isn't that a wonderful thing to happen? That's what God does for us spiritually. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, Paul says, and God has quickened us together with Christ. So there are three levels on this revival. Here's the first one. Desperation. Desperation. The boy in the picture... <coughs> was desperate when he became a Christian. He was a truant, a liar, a cheat, a thief, a blasphemer, a bully. And one of the things that intrigued me when I first heard the gospel was who had let the preachers into the secret of what I was like? <laughs> that was one of my initial problems. How did that man know about me? <laughs> and I used to go home and think about it. Who was it who told him what I was like? In actual fact, God was showing me my great need of him over a period of weeks. And I felt hopeless and helpless. And this has been the, the lot of many Christians who've come to God. They all come to God in different ways. I realize that. There's a man called Jock Troop and he was afraid to go to sleep at night because he was afraid of wakening up in hell. Imagine being in that state. Well, he was desperate. And so was I. Desperation is stage one. Here's stage two. Stage two is salvation. When you realize that God loved you, no matter what you're like, no matter how deep died your sin is, no matter how hopeless your case is, no matter um, how lacking you are in confidence, about God and His truth, that He could love you. Um, and salvation comes. And salvation is deliverance. Salvation is freedom. Salvation is relief. <laughs> salvation is retrospective over our past sins as well as our present sins and our future sins. What a wonderful message is the message of salvation. In 1926, 
in a great religious gathering in Chicago. Um, each religion was giving, giving the op- given the opportunity to present its message. And the Christian spokesman told the story of Macbeth and Lady Macbeth and the gentle Duncan, um, the king that they murdered, and how before it, uh, Lady Macbeth says, oh, a little water will rid us of this deed. You know Shakespeare's play. And later on, she says, all the perfumes of Arabia would not sweeten this fair hand. And the spokesman for Christianity said, what could your religion do for Macbeth and Lady Macbeth? The message of Christ could deal with the past as well as the present and future. And salvation is revival, new life in Jesus Christ. If any man be in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. The old has gone. The new has come. And stage three, desperation, salvation, elevation. (laughs) God lifts us up. Sometimes in the Psalms, you read a funny phrase. It says... Thou art my God, in the old text, you know. You are my God, and the lifter up of my head. That's a funny phrase, isn't it? What does that mean, the lifter up of my head? Well, apparently in the ancient Near East, if someone came in for an audience with the king, he would crawl along the floor on his face. And when he got near the king, if the king wanted to show him favor, he would step forward, I don't know what he did with bald guys. Okay. The illustration breaks down. But normally, <laughs> he would grab a hunk of your hair <laughs> and lift up your head <laughs> so that you could express your need to God. And I think that's what uh, the psalmist is thinking of. God is the lifter up of his head. When he comes to God in his abject need, God lifts him up and blesses him and encourages him and challenges him and uses him in God's service. And that is the wonderful outflow of salvation. To know that we have the rightful authority from God, as many as received him, John says in chapter 1 verse 12, to them he gave the exousia, the rightful authority from a legitimate source, to become the sons and daughters of the living God. And that's what we are when we trust in Jesus Christ. And that's the vision Isaiah wants to give us tonight. That this God sees us in our desperate needs. And through the Lord Jesus Christ and His cross and passion, His given life, His shed blood, in the prime of His young manhood, offering Himself without spot to God, in the gospel He wants to come and revive us. Give us new life. To take us out of our desperate condition into a condition of salvation and elevation so that we belong to God. Well, you see the boy. What a state that boy was in. One night, I got a phone call and it was from a church in Glasgow. Clarkson Baptist Church. They had been putting up a new building and a prominent Christian had given them a little gift. This was years ago. A little gift towards a building of £3,500. Now, that's a lot of money in those days. 
And in gratitude to this Christian benefactor, they had invited him to speak at the opening of the new church. Well, unfortunately, he took ill. And the night before the opening of the church, they telephoned me (laughs) to come and preach in place of this. I knew he was a millionaire, this man. So I said to my wife, get on your good coat tomorrow night, dear. You're filling in for a millionaire's wife. (laughs) And so we went and preached the gospel of encouragement to the folk there because God had lifted us up. He is my God and the lifter up of my head. Nearly finished. What can I do in the light of all this? Well, here's the first thing. Bend before the cross. Bend is a difficult thing to do. Iolante talks about bend, bend, you lower middle classes, bend, bend, you tradesmen, bend, you... It's hard to bend. Because by nature, practice and disposition, we are proud people. And we shake our fist in God's face and we say we will not have this man, Jesus, to reign over us. I am Lord of my own life. Keep out God. And so, what we have to do is a difficult thing. To bend before the cross of the Redeemer. And secondly, to believe in the Christ. To trust in Him in all our abject desperation. And ask Him to come to us to put his life in us, to cleanse us, to forgive us, to raise us up and use us, that our lives might be used for his glory.